inside of us your will and your direction for our lives uh, because you are good and you want what is good for all of us and you will never let us down as far as your salvation there's nothing that we can ever do there's no place we can ever go there's no depths of our depravity that you can't pull us back from because you are good and you're never going to let us down and your promise that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us you're never going to let us down the times that we feel so alone and that we feel so scared and we feel so helpless or we feel so angry about the hand that life has dealt us the times god when we feel maybe like you've let us down you have not you have not and you will not because your word is true and your promises endure and are secure forever you're never going to let us down Father, help us all in this room today, no matter what we are doing in here today, no matter what kind of week we've brought in with us, what kind of week maybe it is that we're facing, help us to be fueled with knowing that you are the God who saves, you are the God whose promises are secure and your word endures forever, that you will never let us down. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Jim and Brian, why don't you come up here? Boy, do you guys realize for a church our size to have a band this good is pretty unheard of? Like, they're pretty amazing. You guys, come on up. I want everybody to get a good look at both don't of you. Fall, we don't have insurance. Or they're both. <laughs> we don't. It's too expensive. Um, so. <clears throat> this is what you see every week. Yeah, you can barely see them, which is good. No, they're beautiful. You weren't supposed to talk, Jim. So. Um, just, just wanted to make a couple announcements. Um, as you guys know, we're still a young church. We're a little over three years old. And initially, because of the way it was set up, we're a church that is, um, we don't have any full-time staff and we don't have a, a full-time building. And the reason for that is to keep our fixed costs as low as possible so that we can use more of our time and resources, particularly our money, in other areas in the community with helping single moms, with recovery community, with feeding the poor, things like that, helping with bridge grants, with rental assistance, all kind of different stuff. But because of that, the initial first three years, I pretty much ran the finances in the church knowing that at some point we were gonna need to rotate myself out of that. And this year is the year. We're going toward a, an all-volunteer staff that runs our finances, and we've hired an outside uh, accounting firm, a bookkeeping firm for accountability and things like that. And I wanted to introduce you to two important people on our finance team. We have Jim Cerny right here, who is in charge of all the administrative things over the finance team, making sure the money's collected right and recorded correctly and the, and the offering teams. And then Brian Tim is going to be taking over, kind of shepherding the finances, approving of expenses and working with team leaders to make sure that they have the money they need and the resources and the budget. And the, and the end goal will be that very soon I will be able to rotate completely out of that and focus on shepherding and teaching and preaching. And, and that's a really good thing. And I want to thank both these guys, Jim Cerny and Brian Tim, for stepping up to lead that team. So give them a hand. And now, this is very important. Go collect the money now, right now. Go <laughs> collect the money. But... Um, as you guys know, uh, we try to keep our cost as low as possible when it comes to staff and building so that we can do the things that we feel like God has called us to do. And one of our core values, we're mobile, we're organic, we're biblical, and we're generous. Generous is one of our core values, and the goal is that Grace Life will be surprisingly generous, that our community will look at us and say, they did what? They did why? They did how much? 
And that's the goal. And because of that, most churches spend 80% of their money on staff and building. And our goal is to spend about 40%. Right now, we're about 48. So within three years, we've gone from 75% of our money on staff and building to about 48%. That's really good. But we're not there yet, but we're getting there. So I want to thank you guys for supporting the ministry, for what you do. I believe it is the best bang for your kingdom buck when it comes to that type of thing. Okay? Um, all right. And if somebody's waving back there, make sure you get that bucket right over there. Somebody's waving. All right. I'm watching both. All right. Let's talk about the scripture today. If you bring the slides up. So we are continuing with our series uh, called Mark the Evangelist, this, this chapter by chapter, verse by verse study of the gospel of Mark. And I explained early on, it really does read like a Twitter feed. The way he writes it is very quick and fast. And so if you are on Twitter and you haven't started following at Mark the Evangel 1, you're really missing out on the stuff he tweets during the week. But this is a series on the gospel of Mark. We are at, can you believe it already, week 13. I've titled this week's message, The Jesus Crowd. Now, normally I give you an introduction before I read the passage. I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to read the passage first. And I want you to see that this passage is sort of a summary of everything so far. And it's a well-written transition before the whole narrative begins to change in the Gospel of Mark. So let's read. Mark chapter 3, verse 7 to 12, we'll start off. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea. This is after what had happened at the uh, synagogue where he healed the man with the withered hand. And now all the Jewish uh, religious leaders want to kill Jesus. And they're conspiring with the politicians to kind of catch him. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed. And from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When a great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Well, of course they would. He's healing them. He's feeding them. He's doing a lot of cool stuff. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him at the shore, at the beach, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known, the demons. And this was the tweet from Mark the Evangelist this week. And I love that picture. And as I was reading this passage today, or this week, I kept picturing what it must have been like with this massive crowd on the shore as Jesus and his disciples make a quick getaway on this boat. And it made me ponder this possibility all week. I'm just, this picture, I found it on Google and I, I'm sorry, Mark found it on Google and he threw it up there <laughs> in his Twitter feed, right? And this picture of the crowds right at the shore and the boat right there, I just thought it was a beautiful picture. And it made me ponder this possibility. Is there a difference between following Jesus and knowing him? And what if, just bear with me now, what if it's possible that following Jesus, we talk about following Jesus a lot, what if that's the easy part? The part that everyone can be good at. Is it possible that what some of us, even in this room, are doing today, right now, with Jesus, might, if you'll allow me, miss the boat? Very clever, right? You like that? I believe what you will learn today, in fact, is that following Jesus isn't anywhere near enough. We must know Jesus. We must be his disciple. 
And you will learn that being part of the crowd, the Jesus crowd, is very different from actually knowing Jesus and being in the boat with him. You will also learn that a true connection with Jesus is 100% always on his terms, not yours. Okay, so what we do with each passage each week at Grace Life, we like to break down the three applications. We look at the history. What about man? What did he do and why and how did he do it? Then we look at the theology. What about God? What did he do and why and how did he do it? And then, and only then, can you understand the devotional application. What about me? What am I supposed to do and why and how do I do it? So let's answer the historical questions. I want to talk about the gospel so far. He is well-known but unknown. That's who Jesus is. He's well-known But frankly, he is unknown. Now the establishment, both the religious and the political, see Jesus as a significant threat and they want to kill or destroy him. And they know that Jesus now represents an end to their institutions. And the larger his following gets, the more danger the elite are in. And Jesus was declaring the beginning of a new spiritual structure which included their destruction and their demise, so obviously the powerful want him dead. They cannot deny the manifestation of his authority and his power through his healings, through his exorcisms, and through his incredibly popular and populist teachings. They know Judaism as they know it, religion as they know it, the temple worship is in significant danger. But his last action, healing the withered hand of the man in the back of the synagogue that was near Peter's house, that actually took things to a whole new level. And now they're not just a little bit concerned with him, now they absolutely abhor and hate Jesus. But that's not the only problem he faces. He has massive crowds. A huge crowd is following him. And based on, I'm just going to give you a little bit of biblical geography lesson here. Just based on simple geography, we can pretty fairly accurately estimate how big this crowd is. It's probably tens of thousands. And Mark breaks it down. Matter of fact, he says there are some from Galilee, which is the north. There are some from Judea, which is the south. There are some from Jerusalem. And Idumea and the southeast of Judah in the desert, they're coming out. And all of these areas are either Jewish or heavily Jewish with a mix of Jewish and Gentile. But then he adds another region. It's Tyre and Sidon. These aren't Jewish areas. These are pretty much strictly Gentiles. And it goes all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. It's all a big Gentile area. And what Mark says is this crowd is not just coming from Galilee. It's coming from Jerusalem. It's coming from Judea. It's coming from Galilee and Idumea and Tyre and Sidon all the way to the sea. And he's going to the Sea of Galilee. And this area that's all these people are coming out of the woodworks is all all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. A crowd of Jews and Gentiles streaming out of surrounding areas to get close to Jesus, seeking something from him. They are seeking his healing powers. Maybe they're seeking his political movement. Maybe they're seeking something else. We don't know, but they're all there. People who are physically sick, people who are mentally ill, struggling with things like depression, anxiety, disabilities of all types, demon possession, viral illnesses, birth deformities, debilitating injuries, everything you can imagine. 
Jesus is famous because they know that he is going around solving these unsolvable problems. Remember, there really was no medical science then. You got sick, you just languished and died, and maybe you got better. That was it. And it's a desperate mob, throbbing and teeming with desperate people. All they're trying to do is get next to Jesus. Of course there would be a crowd, right? I mean, it's a very primitive time to live. No medicine, underdeveloped economic situations for many, a short life expectancy. A rabbi with a power to heal. And by the way, some fairly wealthy followers. Peter and those guys had some money. Matthew, the tax collector, had some money. So you got a rabbi with rich followers who can heal. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that group? It would be very attractive, would it not? I mean, no one at this point in human history, no one has ever come close to this popularity. No prophet, no sage, no rabbi, no wise man, no philosopher, no war hero, no one. And in a short time, in a very short time, Jesus has surpassed all of his contemporaries. And he does it without an army and without a temple. So what begins to happen, it's very clear he needs to organize a strategic retreat for two reasons. There are two dangers. There are the religious that want to kill him, and there are the mobs that want to crush him because they just want to get near him. So he knows this is going to get worse, both the crowds and the hostility. And there are several examples, as a matter of fact, in Jesus' ministry where he strategically retreats from danger and from crowds to let hysteria die down, perhaps to protect his disciples from undue pressure, or maybe just to rest a little while. But Jesus sometimes leaves crowds of people unhealed, uncalled, and untransformed. Is that problematic for you? I mean, why would Jesus leave a crowd of people seeking healing? Why would he leave them unhealed? When he could certainly do it, right? He could heal them in an instant. It's in his power. It's in his authority. Does that make him cruel? Or is it possible it's part of what we call a limited atonement? You see, this is what happens, right? Remember when he was leaving Capernaum? And heading north to the Sea of Galilee, away from the towns where most religious elites and political elites lived. This happened, remember, right when he first started preaching in the synagogues and all the people started coming to Peter's house for, for healing after church that Sunday or Saturday. It was Saturdays, right? We get that. But then at the end, they're all lined up and Jesus goes away somewhere. And Peter says, Jesus, why are you leaving? There's a ton of people. They're right here to be healed. He says, nah, I'll deal with them later. Well, he does it again right here at the shore. Tens of thousands of people coming. And he's getting away from all of it. I mean, if he wanted to save and wanted to heal everyone, he could have. But the fact of the matter is, whether we like it or not, he didn't. Instead, he tells his disciples to get a boat ready so they can get away from the massive crowd of people wanting healing. It's very strategic, right? He says, listen, there's a crowd. We're making our way. I want you to speed up ahead and get a boat ready. It's very smart. 
Nobody will expect this. It's a very remote area that he's going to. It's not like it's a resort town. Nobody would have a boat ready in this area but him. So it's a very good escape from the crowds. And I want you to notice there's something else here. There are followers, but then there are also disciples. Not everyone. In fact, I would say a very small percentage were actually following Jesus for the right reasons. They weren't wrong, and don't get me, don't misunderstand me. They weren't wrong for seeking the healing, but it's doubtful that most of that crowd wanted anything more than that. They weren't following Jesus to really know him and to know his teachings, to sacrifice everything they have for him. They were actually following him to get something that they desperately needed. Now, at this point, there are seven chosen apostles. So far, it's Peter. Andrew, James, John, Matthew, and John 1 says during this time he had also called Philip and Nathaniel. The others aren't called yet. We're going to get to that next week. But the disciples isn't just these apostles. There are many unnamed people who are buying in to what Jesus is saying. And as a matter of fact, the word is right here. It's methetus. That's the Greek word. It means learner or pupil. He says, so there's a crowd following, but he says to his learners, his pupils, his disciples, go get a boat ready. I'll meet you there and we're going to get away from the crowd. So there's two different people here. There are those who are left on the shore, the followers, and those who get in the boat with Jesus, the disciples, the learners, the pupils. These are people following Jesus for very different reasons in the crowd. They have been enlightened by his grace to his spiritual truth. They are abandoning the old, tired, worn out messages of the earthly rabbis, the scribes and the Pharisees. They see Jesus as much more than some miracle worker. They see him as someone they want to trust their hearts and souls to. So with a crowd of tens of thousands following, hardly any of them know Jesus at all. Only a handful really know him well. And even with them, by the way, it's an ongoing process. And what Jesus is doing is setting the terms of who gets to know him, how, and when, and on whose terms. He is in charge. So let's talk about the spiritual. I want to talk about the aspect of this being on his terms. What we see is a summary of how he's operated so far. He has done many amazing things, but he has done it on his term for his purposes. For example, I want to talk about his authority and compassion throughout the gospel of Mark so far. There's thousands of instances of healing, several sermons, and four very direct confrontations with the elite, the last one being the most harsh We've seen examples of Jesus displaying physical, spiritual, and political authority everywhere he goes, fearlessly standing against the establishment, authority over disease and sickness. He's even ordered demons what to do and what to say and where to go. He is ending a corrupt religious system. He has confidently, brazenly displayed his authority over everything the people of that time feared or held dear. His process has shown compassion to people left behind by the religious social power structures. Those scorned by the pious became his favorites. Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, the despised, the rejected, the sick. And he chooses on his terms to meet their needs socially, physically, spiritually without any requirement or preconditions on their part yet he doesn't do this for everyone 
only those he wants to heal. But then we see some power over evil. And frankly, what Mark displays is the evil is terrified in his presence. Whenever he appeared, the scripture said the demonic forces literally, the word means literally, fall to the ground. Evil knew who Jesus was well before the humans did, and they know what his presence means. Matter of fact, James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. They say, you are the son of God. What are you doing here? They believe the truth. They're terrified by it. Yet Jesus orders these demons not to make his presence known. He wants to hide his identity from most of these people. Why would he do this? Isn't it like the opposite of what you'd think he'd want? Because he doesn't need the voices of evil spreading his message. Many will speak the name of Jesus, but have evil motives. Certainly the demons would be among that crowd. He won't even let them proclaim who he is. He will proclaim who he is on his terms, at his choosing, at his timing. And then we see this sovereign selection, which I just find so fascinating. Here at the end of Act 1 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus gets in a boat, leaving a group of tens of thousands, stranded, without the things they wanted, the things that motivated to follow Jesus in the first place. Why wouldn't Jesus just heal all these suffering followers all at once? I'll tell you, Jesus wanted to save everyone in the world, wouldn't this be the perfect place to start? I mean, wouldn't this be a convenient spot? Okay, just get in the boat. From the boat where you're safe, healed. And then leave. <laughs> and why not let evil declare he's the son of God? Certainly, that would cause people to stand up and take notice. It seems like from a human perspective, Jesus is missing a golden opportunity here, just like the story outside of Peter's house in chapter 1. It sure seems like Jesus is making it harder to know him. Harder than most preachers today are willing to admit. The fact is, Jesus does things his way. He spreads his message to people of his choosing, in his timing, and his authority, and with his perfectly chosen level of revelation to each individual person. That's what he's doing here. That's what he does all through the first three chapters of the Gospel of Mark. So let's look at the personal side now. Are you in the crowd or the boat? This was the sermon preview I put up in our social media campaign this week. Are you merely a member of the enthusiastic Jesus crowd, or are you a true disciple? So church, it is very easy to see the big crowd on the shore as an enthusiastic group of followers. But were they really disciples? Did they even know him? I mean, what would have happened to the crowd if Jesus decided to meet all their needs and motives in grand fashion? He just waves his hand, you're all healed, here's food for life, demons get out, now trust me with your souls. Done. Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, it fits the kind of weird theology that many people have today. Even today, massive crowds try to come to Jesus on their terms. 
wanting Jesus to do something for us. Prove it. If you really are God, do this for me. Rescue me from this pain. Help me escape these consequences of my bad decisions. Give me this desire. Give me this motive. Give me this person. Give me this job. Give me this car. Yet in doing so, what we do is, listen carefully, this is where we skillfully navigate and manage the risks that might be associated with any sacrifice necessary of following Jesus. And it's not easy to know Jesus, I'll admit that. Many things will get in the way in this world. But you know what the most unexpected hindrance and obstacle to knowing Jesus is? The one that happens more than anything? It's Jesus himself. He not only has authority for healing over evil, over truth, over creation, he is also in charge of who gets to know him. And he sets the standard in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Cast out demons, do many mighty works in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Isn't that a little bit frightening? (sighs) Unfortunately, many in today's Jesus crowd aren't really interested in what this verse means. Right here. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, you really want to follow me? Well, here's the terms. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and then follow. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake <clears throat> will find it. Jesus sets the standard for what it means to follow him, and it's really high. So many don't want to know what this verse means, but frankly, it's quite simple. He might let you follow for a little while on your terms, but he won't let you know him on your terms. It will always be on his terms. So look, here's the deep truth that I want to make sure you understand. You can go on following Jesus on your terms if you want, and many of you are, frankly, I see it as your pastor and your friend, you are struggling with it. You are constantly fighting the battle of following Jesus on your terms. You can keep doing that, but you'll never know Jesus. You'll just be a follower. So, I just kept thinking about this picture all week. Let's not kid ourselves. Some of us, even in this room, are those that would be left on the shore. Because we're just following the Jesus crowd. The list of benefits from following Jesus is long. It's quite a draw that brings many into the Jesus crowd. And the Jesus crowd hopes for all the benefits associated with following Jesus, but manages to keep the sacrifices cheap and convenient. We know what we want. When we want it, 
what we are willing to let it cost us, we decide what's off limits to Jesus and what isn't. Look, it's not wrong to enjoy the benefits of knowing Jesus. I'm not saying that. But the moment he calls us to sacrifice, that's when it begins to change. Many proclaim their love for Jesus on Facebook. They do it in recovery meetings. They do it with bumper stickers and Jesus fish logos on their business signs. We masquerade as disciples, as learners, pretending to embrace the teachings of Jesus while all the while in secret and sometimes in public living lives that are completely antithetical to them. We soak up peripheral benefits while shirking most of his commands about morality, money, service, sacrifice, unless those things are convenient and things we can budget. We'll do that. We hold our money too tight. We hang on to immoral relationships. We hang on to our time. We talked about the Sabbath last week. We even hang on to our religious heritage. I have seen how certain things draw a Jesus crowd. Here's a silly example, but it's a real example of the Jesus crowd. Let me, and don't anybody be offended by this, okay? But I just want to talk about this. Believe, uh, infant baptism. So infant baptism is you as a parent saying, I want my child to identify with the earthly body of Jesus and get all those benefits. I get requests all the time from people. You would be stunned how many people ask me to baptize their babies. The problem is most of them don't really know Jesus. They're just part of the Jesus crowd. They want their child to get all the earthly benefits of the Jesus crowd, but they don't really want to be learners or disciplers. They don't want to really be in the boat. They want to associate with Jesus, but they don't really want to sacrifice all that much. They have become content with shore life and any of the benefits that might bring. They aren't disciples. They're just followers in the crowd following Jesus on their terms. They'll come for the baptism. Maybe they'll come back for Easter. If we're lucky, Christmas Eve, if it's a Saturday, because, you know, you got to work. And they say they want their child to be brought up as a Jesus follower. And the baptism is emotional. They'll bring friends and family in from out of town, and then I won't see them for a year and a half, two years. See, that type of following doesn't get you in the boat with Jesus. It means you will be left on the shore. Don't mistake the enthusiastic crowd for knowing Jesus. It can be part of knowing Jesus, certainly. I'm not saying it can't, but that's not the core. There must be a deeper reason for us to be with Jesus, a desire to truly know him. And I think Paul explains it so well in Philippians 3, 10 to 11. As you guys know, I love Paul. I love this is what my first book was on in Philippians, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and I may share in all the fun things. Is that what it says? 
No, it says that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Doesn't it frighten you? The possibility that you're just part of the Jesus crowd? What Paul describes here is what the heart of a true disciple wants. It's the good, but with every bit of the possible bad. All of it. It's a relationship with Jesus that looks well past the dim things of now and has eyes into eternity. It's unmanaged, it's unqualified, unfiltered willingness to sacrifice everything just to make sure you know him and are in the boat. So why are you here today? Are you part of the Jesus crowd? Or do you really desire to know Jesus on his terms. God, we, <clears throat> we just confess to you our, our motives, even when it comes to what seems righteous, are so confusing to us. We can hear a sermon like this and a story like this and, and we are mixed with a little bit of Nervousness, anxiety, self-introspection, but I guess, God, it's a good thing if we feel that way because you are working in our heart and life, and it's evidence of the fact that we want to know you if we're concerned about what you think. So we're thankful for that. But for those who are able to relate to what I'm talking about this morning, I pray that you would give them an insatiable desire to identify with everything about you, even in death, so that we might have life. We don't want to be left on the shore. We want to be in the boat 